You're listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them. We elicit expert advice from exit planners, attorneys, merger and acquisition experts, accountants, business appraisers, and financial advisors, all with a goal of educating you about the sales process. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition. This is Noah Rosenfarb here with another great guest, John Warillo. John is the founder of the Sellability Score, which helps owners assess the sellability of their company. It's licensed to a network of over 1,700 accountants and advisors around the world who use it as a succession planning conversation starter with their clients, and I'm proud to be a subscriber to that software as well. But um, perhaps equally important, John's the author of the best-selling book, Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You, which was one of the best business books for 2011 uh, for both Fortune and Inc. Magazine. So the other thing that I think our audience will find really interesting is that before John wrote his book, before he created this software, he started and exited four companies. And so we're going to talk about all these things today with John. John, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So, yeah, take me back in time and tell me about your experience as an entrepreneur early on. How did you get started? Yeah, I mean, I got started actually interviewing entrepreneurs for a nationally syndicated radio show that I produced over a period of two years and, and got to interview a, a number of different uh, fantastic entrepreneurs. That inspired me to, to, to kind of build a few companies. My last one uh, was a market research business, and, and like a lot of, I guess, you know, professional services businesses, it was highly custom, highly dependent on a couple of key clients. I can remember, uh, you know, thinking that I wanted to sell the business, but, you know, realizing that there wasn't really much to sell the way we'd structured some, some pretty profound changes in the way we, uh, we ran that business ultimately. So you said you, you wanted to sell it, but you knew you, it didn't really have value the way it was structured. What, what, gave you the impetus to think, you know, I'd like to sell this. Did you want to do something else? You know, I was on a taxi ride across the United States. Funny story, um, Amex called. We were in Toronto. Amex is in New York. They called and said, hey, we'd like to have you come down and present. Um, it was a Tuesday night. Show up at the airport on Tuesday night. There's huge thunderstorms up and down the northeastern seaboard, and we can't get into New York. I tried Baltimore, uh, D.C., uh, all the different you know, northeastern seaboard cities. Couldn't fly in, and ended up taking a taxi all the way to New York to get this meeting. And I and I got to the steps of the meeting uh, like half an hour before the meeting was supposed to start, and I had one of those kind of epiphanies and, and realized that you know this is crazy. I keep going like this for another 20 years, taking a taxi all night to see a client. And I, I decided that I wanted to sell this, this business. And um, I went back to Toronto after the meeting, and I met with an M&A professional, a guy who sells companies. The guy's name is Perry Miele, Derringer Capital. And I said, Perry, uh, you know, what's it worth? And by this point, we, we'd built it up. We'd had, you know, we'd, it, it, fairly good-sized company, uh, big blue-chip clients, American Express, Microsoft, others. And... Um, 
I said, you know, what do you think it's worth? They said, well, you know, before I answer that question, let me ask you a couple. And, and I said, sure. And he said, you know, who does the research? And I said, well, that's my research guys. And he said, okay, uh, you don't approve it. And, and I said, well, I still, you know, I still approve major studies. And he said, okay, question number two, who does the selling? And I said, well, it's my sales guys. And he said, uh, really? So what's with you taking a taxi to New York to go visit Amex? Why did, why did your sales guys do you know, he called, he called me on on uh, on my my fibs basically, and, and and showed me that in fact I was still very dependent. The business was still very dependent on me. I was still involved in in some of the selling, and so um, that's when Perry said, "Look, you know, there's nothing here for me to sell. You're you're the business." Uh, and I responded by saying, "Look, we've got you know millions in revenue and great blue chip clients. Sure, there's something to sell." And he said, "No, if you're in charge of sales and you're still approving the research, there's nothing to sell." And that's what triggered kind of a five year odyssey where uh, we scrapped our business model, changed what we were doing, built a subscription model, scaled the business up, ultimately sold it to a public company in, uh, in 2008. So uh, that five-year odyssey, as you described, who, who was along with you for the journey uh, on the outside advisory side? We had, a, we had an advisory board and a number of different advisors help us. Um, final uh, six to 12 months of that journey, I engaged a, a, a two in particular advisors who had gone through the process a few times and, and uh, in particular um, were steeped in sort of knowledge about how to sell to a strategic. And so I, I, had, I had some outside advisors helping me with that as well. And, and when did the banker come back into the picture? Did, did you retain? Uh, banker came back in uh, you know, probably six months before. Okay. And and what was the kind of the biggest lesson you learned through that auction process? Hmm, great question. There's so many. You know, I, I liken the the act of selling the business to a little bit like landing uh, 737 on the Hudson River. You remember Sully, the guy who 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 landed the um, I think it was a U.S. Airways flight on uh, on the Hudson River. And, it's you know a 30-year veteran, done everything there is to do in an airplane. Was training other pilots how to you know fly and, and deal with disaster situations. Yet he'd never ever in his career landed a plane full of people on the Hudson River. And so in many ways, I think selling a business is a lot like trying to fly and land a 737 on the Hudson River. You you don't get to practice, and 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 business owners. You know, we get to practice so much of the stuff that we do, right? Marketing plans, hiring people, firing people. I mean, we've done it all so many times that we don't need to rehearse. But when it comes to selling, I think it does. Uh, it, it is not something you get to rehearse. And so, uh, it, uh, you know, it's tricky. Back to your question, Noah. Uh, I mean, you know, so many. One of the one of the big ones I recall is uh, is how to. Capital calculation. So, on you know, an offer to purchase a, a, a business, um, there's two numbers. One is the is the sale price that they're offering you. Two is the working capital calculation. And it's tempting as a business owner to ignore the latter and focus on the former. But in reality, and you're a CPA, so you know this, that the working capital calculation, which is the amount of money you leave in the bank the day you hand over the keys, um, can have a profound impact on the amount of money that you take away from a transaction. 
and uh, the different offers that we got for the business uh, had different ways of calculating working capital. And my accountant kind of pointed that out to me and saying, you know, uh, spend some time looking at this working capital calculation because it does make a huge difference in these offers. Yeah. Yeah, great. Uh, a great point. So you sell the company. Did you have a plan for what you were going to do next? Uh, uh, not really. I mean, uh, you know, with with the sale of the business, obviously there's a transition period. So uh, so we went through that, and then uh, you know, my wife and I decided that uh, we wanted to have sort of a life experience. So we moved to France. Actually, we moved our. We've got two young kids, so we moved uh, uh, to a village called Aix-en-Provence. We lived there for three years, and uh, and that was a great experience. Uh, uh, you know, had a had a chance to really uh, give the kids an exposure to a different culture, different. Um, Different food, different language, you know, different lifestyle, and uh, and had a great time doing that. So that was a uh, uh, that was a big life change. But you know, when I talk to other entrepreneurs, you know, it is a it is a big deal changer uh, selling a business. And so you know, really trying to reinvent yourself, doing something really outside of what is normal, uh, can, can I think it certainly for me it helps kind of. You know, and get things um, focused in a different direction. So that was a that was a good experience for us. And and while you were there, did you did you create the book built to sell? Uh, you know, the book was written while I was still in Toronto, uh, but you know, some of the marketing for it, some of the promotion, I think the, the actual publishing date, we were in France for the day it was published. So some of that uh, work was done uh, from France, but uh, uh, but a lot of the promotion and so forth was uh, was done from there as well. So what gave you the idea to to write a book? You know, I got through it a few times, Noah, uh, and... I can't. I, there wasn't a grand, you know, theme. I, you know, I'd love to be able to say, well, it was going to be the calling card for my new business. Um, you know, the book would help us, you know, license sell those. There was no grand <laughs> sort of agenda. It was one of those, uh, I would say, visceral guts. Uh, um, after having gone through it a few times, to to kind of get some ideas in uh, on in you know on paper, uh, to the extent that they could perhaps help some folks, that would uh, that would be great. So yeah, there wasn't really a grand theme. I just started writing. I had some time, obviously, and and um, and it, it kind of came out pretty quickly. Uh, you know, again, I, I had the benefit of. Uh, an advisory board, uh, you know, the, the, the characters, the book is a fictional story. Alex Stapleton is a fictional character. The uh, the advisor, played by Ted Gordon, is a fictional character. However, the advisor is kind of an amalgam of some of the, you know, the lessons I learned from both my advisory board and then some of my, you know, specific advisors uh, over kind of a 20-year period. So, um, so yeah, that's a... Uh, that, gone out of that but that's uh those are some thoughts yeah and and what was the message that you wanted to get out there what what was what was it that drove you to wrote the book yeah it's funny you know i just came back from the inc 500 so here, here we are you know a couple of years after writing the book i came back from the inc 500 and i was sitting on a panel about exit and one guy stuck his hand up in the air and said you know uh my business is a 15 million dollar business we're putting three million dollars on the bottom line me and my two partners, uh, you know, asking me some questions about whether it was sellable. And I said, well, you know, who, who does the selling? And he said, uh, well, that's me and my partners. And I said, well, 
then no, it's really not sellable. I mean, the only way you're going to get out of that business is if you agree to an earnout. Uh, if you and your partners agree to stay on and, and leave much of the value, you know, in into the in the hands of an earnout. And I think that's pretty common among a lot of entrepreneurs. We 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 confuse growth with value and a lot of especially kind of younger entrepreneurs those that are sort of aspiring to grow will have a top line number that they want to hit and certainly everyone at the 500 has certainly had that but you know that's not the same as having a valuable company and and that's really what I wanted to to try to communicate in the book is is there is a huge difference between building a business and building a valuable business and uh, if if you're if you're kind of not taking any money off the table, not taking any chips off the table and thinking, oh, well, one day I'll sell this thing, well, make sure you're building something sellable. And if you don't think that it's ever going to be sellable, like you're building a law firm uh, or, or something that's got like most of its assets go up and down the elevators, David Ogilvy said, then no day one and start paying yourself well, draw out the dividends from the business every year because there is no payday at the end of the year. I think so many entrepreneurs just assume that one day the thing is going to be sellable and wake up and, and, and find out as, as I did, um, you know, that, that I, you know, I, my baby was ugly. In other words, I, I didn't have a company that was sellable uh, before I made some of those uh, gut-wrenching changes. So that's the kind of key message I wanted to get out. And and you're um, you're now collecting a tremendous volume of data around owners and ownership and exiting. Uh, so you know what what do you say that the data is telling you about how prepared or how sellable owners companies are? Yeah, so uh, to give you a sense, uh, at sellabilityscore.com, we're on a mission to create a million sellable businesses between now and 2050. So we've got 25 years of. Uh, to help a million business owners get their business ready to sell. Our definition of a business that is ready to sell is someone who scores on the sellability score at least 80 and above. And to give you a sense of what proportion of our, our users do that, it's about 5%. So the other 95% are scoring less than 80. Probably the biggest opportunity business owners have to improve their score uh, is to create some reoccurring revenue. You know, that's that probably has the, the most profound impact on the attractiveness of a company is having some annuity-based revenue. Um, you know, subscription model companies are are, are the, the real darlings here of, of the economy. So clearly guys like Salesforce.com and others have subscription revenue. But there's other ways to create subscription revenue. I, I mean, um, Apple has got their one-to-one -one service that they sell. Net um, Amazon is now offering uh, various subscription services for, for groceries even. So, you know, the more uh, I think business owners can think through what's the subscription model, what is the reoccurring engine that uh, gives an acquirer confidence that the business is going to continue after the owner steps away. Yeah. And how about some of the other important data that you've been collecting? What would you share with either the owners or advisors on the call about what you see as the trend line over the last you know, few years that you've been um, collecting the metrics and, and surveying owners? 
Yeah, so we do something called the Sellability Tracker. It's a quarterly research study developed at a PowerPoint presentation uh, that tracks the people who use the tool. So we now have thousands and thousands of users who have gone through it, and so we do have some of the data that you're referencing. Um, the uh, Some of the key... The key the, the proportion of people who are getting an offer is pretty flat, pretty consistent. It's about 12% of the business owners we have who have used the sellability score are, are getting an offer uh, in the last two years. So it, roughly one in 10 of the business owners out there have received an offer in the last two years. Those valuations are in the four to three to four times EBITDA uh, range. So assuming normalized EBITDA, so adjusted EBITDA, so that you're looking at your pre-tax profit essentially for a business, uh, including a market rate salary for the owner, uh, those businesses are getting around three to four times EBITDA. Um, if you look up market for businesses with in excess of $10 million in revenue, for example, that number is getting closer to five. And if you go up again from there and look at companies with, with north of $50 million in revenue, you know, you might see past six, six and a half. So certainly the size of the business does have a fairly significant impact on the EBITDA multiple that, that, that they are being offered at exit. Uh, the smaller the business, obviously the more owner in, the owner dependent on the business and therefore the, the, the lower the multiple. Yeah. Um, for, for any of our listeners that haven't seen the quarterly summary, it's amazing data. So, you know, John, thanks for putting it together and sharing it with the community because it's, uh, it's really awesome stuff to take a look at. And, and it's always um, – there's always something new that I could take when I get that report. So thank you. Oh, great. Glad, glad it's helpful. Um, so another question that, you know, you, you alluded to in the past uh, in, in our discussion was, you know, not every business is sellable. Only 12% of people have gotten an offer in, in the last two years. Um, and some of the other guests that we've had on that are in the M&A business say, you know, 80% of the people that approach them aren't even qualified to take on to help them exit their company. So... Tell me more about the mission that you have to help these million owners. What is it that you think is going to be the key to fostering their business, to going from you know something that's not sellable, where when they when they're gone, the business is gone, to creating value, lasting value. One of the biggest changes is to move from being a hub-and-spoke manager to being an Apple picker. Uh, these names, hub-and-spoke and Apple picker, come from a focus group I moderated years ago now where I asked entrepreneurs in the room to visually describe their role in the company. And one guy drew a, a wheel, and in the middle he drew a hub, like a, a, a bicycle hub, a bicycle wheel with a hub in the middle. And he said, you know, for me, my business, I'm the hub, and all my employees and customers and so all the information, all the communications comes into the hub, and then I dispatch answers. And, of course, as I'm listening to this guy speak, I'm like, well, that's, you know, he, he, there's obviously a very, you know, rigid limit to how big he can grow his business because as, as soon as there's no more time of the day, he can't, he can't build his business anymore. And so we call folks who have that mentality, that controlling need to have all communications go in and out of their desk is a hub-and-spoke manager. And it's really the definition of a worthless business. 
Whereas the apple picker was another guy I had to draw this diagram, and he said, you know, for me, I visualize myself on the second floor of an orchard, and I'm watching as the workers pick the apples off the apple tree, and the trucks come along, and the apples are going into the back of the truck, and then I can see the truck go down the dusty road on the way to the market. And I'm watching... And, of course, that's, that's an attitude or a mentality of a business that's built to sell. You know, someone who can watch, and, and as Michael Gerber says in his, his book, work, work on, not in the business, uh, that's a business that's built to sell. So, you know, really encourage owners listening to, uh, to think about becoming an apple picker rather than a hub-and-spoke manager because that's really, if you, if you were to distill down uh, sellability into its, into its raw you know, components, it's raw material, it, it really comes down to can the business thrive without the owner? So uh, I'll just share with um, the owners on the call kind of one of the first exercises I do with new clients is I have them keep a journal by their desk, and on it they write down all the things they do throughout the course of two weeks. And what we do is we take all that information about what they actually do with their time, and we organize it into high value and low value, and you know whether it's high priority or low priority. And typically through that exercise, owners can find a pattern of of things that they do that they probably could delegate, and they could delegate it now because it has, you know, a low impact. A, a, it's a low priority, uh, and they can delegate that now. And then over the course of time, hopefully, they're able to delegate things that have a medium impact in their company, and eventually that have a high impact. And the more that they can take the things that they do and distribute it to others, and just keep the most important and the most impactful things on their own list, the more value they'll create. Um, is, is, do, do you ad, give advice, John, to owners um, either through the sellability score or through your book on how to do some of these things? No, but I, you know, I love I love what you're doing, though. I think that's excellent. I mean, it, it makes sense just to just to jot down the things that they're doing, uh, you know, and and bucket them into very low value, you know, medium value and high value. And obviously, just start to get rid of the very low value. I mean, you know, with virtual assistants and and you know the variety of, of ways that we can enable sort of ourselves technologically, you know, it, it really does make sense to start you know getting uh, invested in some of the higher value stuff. And and again. What I would I'd encourage people to remember this though, you know when people do that exercise, oftentimes uh, the temptation is to say, okay, well now that I've freed up all this administrative time, um, I can get involved in doing more of the selling because that's where I add the most value. And that's a very common reaction for a lot of business owners. We feel like we're pretty good salespeople. Therefore, you get rid of all the nasty stuff, the messes, and then you go, you know, you go. The problem with that is, is, is if you're then the number one salesperson for your company, there's nothing that you can sell unless you, you want to take a long and, and arduous earnout. You know, Peter Drucker, the famous kind of management theorist, said that any company, the CEO of any company that's successful, focuses most of his or her time on two functions. One is product development. Two is sales and marketing. And, and so Drucker said that any CEO needs to spend the majority of their time on those two assets, on those two, uh, uh, those two items. And I would actually challenge you that if you want to build a sellable company, you actually have to get those two 
things into the hands of other people. Because again, as long as you're the one taking care of the key strategic things in the company, there's only one way that you can sell your company is if you go work as an employee for another business and for a manager. So the temptation, I think, is to, to spend our time as the salespeople for the company. The challenge with that knee-jerk reaction is that doesn't do anything for your sellability. What makes your company more sellable is, is coaching those employees on how to be better salespeople. You know, coaching people in your product development, uh, service development group to, to really understand what the customer experience that you're architecting for looks like. Uh, but actually doing the work doesn't get you any further ahead in terms of sellability. It may make you more profitable, but it doesn't make you any more sellable. Yeah, and, and I think that's a distinction that um, you, you also discussed this a little bit earlier in the interview, is the distinction between you know growth, profits, and value, and that they're not all uh, synonymous, and, and certainly they're not mutually exclusive either, but you know, oftentimes owners look to create more profit in their company, and maybe that's through failing to reinvest in technology so they don't have to buy a $50,000 software package or computer system or upgrade their telephone system. But all those things end up diminishing value in the end as well. So, um, you know, I think it's important to pick the path that you're on, and if you want to transfer value for your interest in your company, you should focus on value because typically, if you focus on value, you're going to get a multiple back for each of these changes that you make rather than on the profit side or the cash flow side where you're just getting it once every year. Um, so, John, what what have you found to be the biggest reaction or benefit to people that have used the sellability score? What's the feedback you're getting? Yeah, the feedback we get is that it's giving me a lot of freedom. Uh, freedom that, you know, now I can kind of freedom to, you know, sell it if we want. But oftentimes people are still a few years away from wanting to sell, but they like the idea that they can scale it, that they can be sort of more of as a chairman figure, uh, making strategic decisions but not involved in the day-to-day, -day. And, and also like the idea that they're, they're, if, they, if they're wanting to pass the business down to friend or family, uh, excuse me, family or I should say management team, that the business is, is more sellable, more valuable as an asset. So there's that sense that, that they're being freed up a little bit from their business. And we, we call that the owner's trap when, when you know, the, the business is too dependent on the owner. They're really trapped inside the business. And so there's a sense of liberation, I think, when you, you make some of these changes. I, I had an email from a guy uh, uh, yesterday, named Mac, and Mac's a guy down in Florida, great guy, and he emailed me and said, you know, uh, what is that my company's way more fun to run now. And, and I sort of put selling it on the back burner um, while it's so much fun to run. And, and that's, a great, that's a great accolade. That's a great endorsement. Obviously, uh, if you want to sell, that's an option. But if you've got a sellable business, you kind of hold all the cards. Yeah, that is great. And I think that's a tremendous advantage to owners that plan in advance is they may fall in love with their business again. They may want to stick with it, you know, and, and ha how does that relate to your experience when you had sold your um, market research company? Was it more fun for you when it was sellable? 
Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, the biggest benefit, of course, to, to making some of these changes, if you are able to, to create some reoccurring revenue, is that you go into the month knowing you've got money on the books. Um, so with a subscription business model uh, or some sort of a new world, you've got that, you, you know next month within plus or minus 5% what next month's going to look like. And, and if you've ever not had that, if you've ever had to scramble and recreate yourself every month to try to cover your nut, it is a, it is a very uh, a fundamentally disturbing feeling knowing that you've got to just kind of recreate yourself in a sell-do sort of environment. Whereas, obviously, if you go in, you've got recurring revenue, you know pretty much how the month's going to shape up. And at that point, you just have the, the mental and, and, and chronological time to just sort of think about your business more. So that's one of the great uh, kind of side benefits of, of making some of these changes. Yeah. And so uh, what's next in the world of built to sell and the sellability score? Where, where do you see – how do you see having that impact on a million businesses? Yeah, so I mean a million people – hit a score of 80 or above in the next 25 years. And so that's going to involve um, a lot of reach out and a lot of, uh, a lot of folks, a lot of advisors who, 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 who use the tool. We're obviously uh, always looking to, to work with advisors who share our vision and passion for helping business owners create sellable companies. So we do license the tool. Uh, and so that's really uh, our, our kind of mission is just to execute against this goal um, along with our, our advisor partners who, uh, who kind of are aligned and share our vision. Yeah. So what else do you think would be helpful to share with our listeners today? I mentioned we've got owners and the advisors that help them both on the call. Uh, tell, tell them more. What, what yeah, like well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess my ask would be that if if any of what, I, whether you're a business owner or an advisor, please uh, visit sellabilityscore.com. Uh, if you're a business owner, please get your score. We have a, a great group of phenomenal advisors who will get you your report and share with you uh, some of their hard-won lessons about how to make your business more sellable. It's free. There is no cost for taking your score. Uh, and then if you're an advisor and you, you'd like a demo of the tool and, you, and you're kind of interested in, in joining this mission, uh, please go to Sellable the Score as well. And on the top right-hand corner, there's a button that says Advisor, and you can just select uh, uh, that and, uh, and choose a time for a demo, which we'd love to uh, offer you. So, uh, so if I could ask you to go to SellableTheScore.com, that, uh, that would be a great uh, favor. Thank you. All right, terrific. Um, well, I'd like to thank you, John, for coming on the show and sharing your experience and sharing the, the vision that you have of helping a million owners get an 80 or above. I'd love it if um, the baby boomers that, that are now in the spot in their lives where they're thinking about how they're going to leave their companies, if they're able to create value and transfer that value to the next generation, um, we'll have what I think it's Richard, uh, Richard Jackham calls this $10 trillion opportunity, a wave of value creation that baby boomers can pass on to the next generation. Generation. And, and unfortunately, if they don't heed the message and they don't stay focused on getting themselves out of the day-to-day -to, -day to their business, you know, that value could be eroded and it would really be a shame. So I applaud you for what you're looking to do and, and support you as well. And hopefully our listeners will take heed of your advice and start creating value in their companies. So just Noah Rosenfarb, I appreciate you joining us today, and we hope to have you back with us on another Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. 
Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast.